Well, good morning. How's everybody? All right, we are beginning a new study today in the book of Colossians. And so if you, um, if you have your Bibles, um, open them up, please, to the book of Colossians. Um, I'm excited to, to kind of announce that this is the 17th book in the New Testament that, that we've taught since we started this church here, Tooele Springs Calvary Chapel, in September of uh, 2013. So kind of exciting that, that we're, we're marching right through the New Testament. And um, at this pace, we'll, it's been, September will be five years, so... Um, but we're not doing too bad. It usually takes about seven years to go through um, the entire Bible, we're doing the Old Testament. We do the Old Testament on Wednesday nights. We're moving a little bit slower, actually, in the Old Testament. I have to speed up the Old Testament to catch up pace. Um, but we're on pace for seven years. And so if you come on Wednesdays and Sundays, uh, we will take you through the entire um, New Testament, Old Testament, the entire Bible in, a, in seven years. And then you can... Um, Read ahead. We always encourage you guys to read ahead as we're as we're in a new book study and read it many times in the week. And so this week and the weeks coming, we're probably I think it's going to probably take us about six or seven weeks to go through Colossians four chapters. And we're just going to kind of take our time and see how the Lord leads us as we walk through it. But we won't we won't slow down and go too slow and kind of this first time get through and then we're ready for another gospel. And so, again, if you're new or if you've been here for a while, basically what we do is. Um, I'll teach a couple epistles or a couple letters in the New Testament, and then I'll go back and, and teach one of the Gospels, and then I'll go and bounce around in the other places in the New Testament, a couple more letters, and then back to one of the um, the Gospels. And that way we don't teach four Gospels right in a row, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We teach a Gospel, teach some letters, go back, catch another Gospel, one of the majors. And so um, the next place we're just due after Colossians for Matthew, and then... It won't be long before we have, will have gone through the entire New Testament. Good stuff, huh? In Colossians, um, basically, the Colossians in each book has its own personality. And, and as we got into Philippians last week, we are, you know, the, the intro to Philippians, we talked about this personality where Paul is not um, correcting the church in Philippi. Paul loved the church in Philippi. He was encouraging them. He was um, teaching them on joy and he didn't have a lot negative to say to them. And he didn't have a lot of correction that he was giving the church in Philippi. He was saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then um, to the to Corinthian church, and he writes, you know, mass first and second Corinthians to the Corinthian church. And they had all kinds of problems in Corinth. And Paul is constantly correcting them and fixing doctrine and, and rebuking them. Well, in, in Coloss, Coloss had its own little personality. It was an obscure little town. And, and the book of Coloss is, it's pragmatic. And that, that just means that, that Paul is defending the faith in the book of Colossians. And there's times as Christians where you have to defend the faith. You have to intellectually um, unpack for somebody who Jesus is and, and, and what the, the, the faith is. And so, like I said, in Romans or in Galatians, we have um, where Paul has grace and works really on the ropes. Remember that when we went through Galatians as a church, I said that when it comes to the area of, of grace and works, Paul takes off the gloves and he's not pulling any punches. And, and he really lets you have it. He really makes a very strong case against a work's salvation in the book of Galatians. And he's and then in Romans, he does a lot of the same thing in Romans. And, you know, in um, Philippians and Ephesians, it's encouraging and it's joy and it's doctrinal. It's battling through spiritual battles and different things. And so each one, according to the Holy Spirit, has a, a little different theme. And again, for the, the, the particular feeling of Coloss, Paul is going to make the strongest case we have in all of the New Testament for the preeminence of Jesus Christ, for the um, supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, as it's on the slide there. There's probably two places in the New Testament, but um, Colossians being one, where, where Paul is going to really hammer home that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is, first of all, God, and that, and that who Jesus is and where he belongs. And so Paul's going to make a super, super powerful case. We're not going to get in, into it today. But if you look at chapter 1, verse 9, what does the title say just above there in your Bible? The preeminence of Christ. So pre, excuse me. So the preeminence, basically the dictionary says of preeminence, it's the surpassing all others or having superiority. 
surpassing all others. That Christ surpasses all others. He has superiority over all others. And Paul again is going to make one of the most powerful cases in all the New Testament here in Colossians for that case for Christ. It's about Jesus, 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 Jesus. One of the things that, you know, we often talk about in unpacking a chapter or a verse. One of the things I tell you guys when you're reading to look for is repetition. Remember, you know, if you hear a phrase repeated, if you hear a word repeated, if you see something in Philippians, what was that word that just kept getting repeated? was joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice many times. And, you know, we're highlighting it. And and whether it's in a section or in a chapter, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit teaches you and I is through repetition. And what we see right here in the beginning of um, five times in the first four verses of Colossians, we find the name Jesus. Once it says Christ and four times Jesus. But Jesus is mentioned five times in the first four verses. And immediately you get this right at the beginning that it's going to be about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The other place in the New Testament, I think, where, you know, we get the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was God and this doctrine really unpacked for us is in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he started right, you know, John starts right out from John chapter one, verse one. You know, whenever you're checking a Bible or a translation of a Bible, and if you want to know if it's a good translation, the first place you always check is you read John 1, 1, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And if they add a one letter in there, an A, and it says the word was a God, then that's a bad Bible. That's a Jehovah Witness Bible. That's a cult Bible. That's a, a Bible that you, you, you can't trust. Because it's been changed, it's been altered from what to change the meaning of what John 1, 1 is intended to say. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, and then John makes it very clear in verse 14 who the Word is. And the Word is Jesus, because only one became flesh and dwelt among us, and that's Jesus. And John tells us in his epistles, we beheld his glory like I held him. I put my arms on him. I laid my head on his bosom. It was Jesus who became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word of God. And then also in the Gospel of John, we have um, the seven I am statements of Jesus, one of the most powerful places of the, the deity and the, and, uh, and the um, preeminence of Jesus also in the gospel of John as, as John, as you know, Jesus himself said, and John records before Abraham was, I am. And we have these seven, I am statements. Well, the, again, in the gospel of John, and then here in Colossians, Paul's going to make a very strong case for the preeminence and the deity of Jesus Christ. And it's pretty powerful. You know, one of the things that like in Philippians chapter two, I'd like to see us do as a church through, through Colossians again, is just respond to these things. You know, when we get something and we get a therefore, we get some doctrine that, that's powerful and that it changes lives. And, that, you know, when, when we get to understand a little bit of what Jesus did for us and who Jesus is, then it helps us appreciate and, um, you know, our position and, and, and who he is in our lives and how valuable he is to us that we then just respond to that. We just simply respond to, to what it is that God has done in our lives. And that's, that's a matter of grace. That's a matter of relationship that we, we don't serve God or do works to God to, to better our position or to earn a better position or place. We do them because we, we simply respond to the goodness of God. And when we see Jesus and the greatness of Jesus, our natural response is to fall in love. And when you fall in love with somebody, you want to be with them. You want to spend time with them. You want to do things that please them. And and in Colossians, we get that. We get these like jaw-dropping, exciting things that we learn about Jesus that encourages us then just to be intimate and relational with him. So um, as far as the, the background to the book of Colossians, can I bore you guys for just a few minutes? Um, so just bear with me. So we have um, Colossae was a, a was a city and it was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Now, now, Paul never went to Colossae, which is interesting about this particular book. He, he of all the, the books that he wrote, the Corinthians, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, these different places, Paul visited oftentimes most of those places. He actually went and started that church, spent some time there, raised up believers, taught them, then raised up a leader or a pastor. And when they became a, a certain size group, 
group and, uh, you know, and they were trained and, and they were doing their thing. Then Paul would go to another city and he would begin the same work. And, and then he would write a letter back to that church that he started. Well, in Colossus, Paul himself didn't start the church. Paul was about 100 miles away. And he spent a lot of time in Ephesus, where the book to the Ephesians was written, the same um, city and church that Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 writes one of the seven letters to the seven churches in Ephesus. And so there in Ephesus, Paul started a, a Bible college. It was called the School of Tyrannus. And, and in the Bible college, you know, Paul was a tent maker, as he tells us, and he would work. In some places he would go, the ministry would pay him. In other places he would go, the ministry was just starting out and couldn't afford to pay him. So Paul had to have a real job. And so in Ephesus, Paul had a job as a tent maker. And, and Ephesus culture, maybe we should have this culture here. I don't know. It doesn't work unless it's like a really hot culture, but... This is definitely not a really hot culture but climate, but um, the, over there, the climate was very, very, very warm. And so the, the work day would take a break. You would take a break in the middle of your work day. It's still this way in a lot of places. Between 1 and 4 o'clock in the hottest part of the day, you would go home. So everybody would sleep in the hottest part of the day between 1 and 4. So you'd work a, a split shift. You'd work in the morning. You'd go home, have lunch or whatever. You'd crash out for a couple hours, and then you'd stay up late in the night. It was said of, of Ephesus that more people were awake at 1 in the morning than there were at 1 in the afternoon. You know, in the summer, like especially where we came from, like you know Palm Springs area, that'd be a great tradition. Although in Palm Springs, it doesn't matter. 2 in the morning, 2 in the afternoon, it's still 110 degrees. But... Um, but you have that hot part of the day, that worst part of the day. You go home, you sleep during that part of the day, and then you work in the, in the cool in the evening. So that's what they were doing. Well, instead of going home and sleeping in the middle of that day, Paul was teaching in the school of Tyrania. So he was working hard. He was working in the morning. He was working in the evening. And his sleep time, he, was, he was started a Bible college. And there was a young man named Epaphras that, that Paul had raised up in this Bible college in Ephesus. And then eventually they sent out... Um, and, and you find Epaphras in verse 7 of chapter 1. And Epaphras was sent out and he went to this kind of obscure city called Colossae. Again, Paul had never even been there. It doesn't even fit on the major Roman roads. And, um, you know, I think God likes little obscure cities and places. Little places like Tooele and little obscure places like Yucca Valley and... You know, God sends people there. And one of the, you know, a couple of things happened in Coloss. One of the things that happened in Coloss was that Coloss was on the Roman road that, that traveled that, that, the, that part of the world, you know, the known world at that time in Paul's day and Jesus's day. Well, like Route 66 left a lot of places in, uh, you know, out, out of business when, when Highway 40 came through. Lydia and I get, drive on Route 66. When you're going from, from here to our home, Palm Springs area, Yucca Valley, you go from Vegas, you go past Vegas, you go into California, you get into um, state, past state line, just into California, you, you head between Vegas and 29 Palms, there's an old road, um, and you, you, for a while, you're on the original Route 66, and original Route 66, there's a town there, it's called uh, um, Amboy, Amboy is what I was thinking of, and Amboy used to be this thriving little town on Route 66, and when Highway 40 came through, Complete, it's a ghost town now. The movie, that little cartoon, The Cars, Radiator Springs. Yeah, it's about Amboy. It's about that, that story that Route 66, when it left and Highway 40 came in, all the business. Well, that happened in Coloss, and I didn't just tell you that story for nothing. Um, Coloss had a major route that went through it, and it route moved, the Roman road moved. And then the other thing that happened is after this time, there was a big earthquake in Coloss, and they had a lot of, a lot of damage there in the city. But nonetheless, it was um, a place that, that, that we have a letter from the Bible and that, that Paul wrote, that Paul started a church in. And so um, this Epaphras goes there, and, and, and Paul, again, this is at the end of Paul's life when he writes this. Paul has several... Um, what we call prison epistles. And the reason why they're prison epistles is because as the, you know, in the Philippians, and we made a, a big deal, right, of Paul being in prison when he wrote the Philippians because he writes it about joy and having, having joy in your life, even in his circumstance of being in prison. And so this is another one of the, um, probably written around the same time he wrote Philippians, um, Philemon, these letters he wrote, four of them that he penned while he was in prison, um, chained to a Roman guard. And so this is one of the prison epistles. Um, and then, any other useless facts you need to know about Colossians or Philippians? I mean, uh, Colossians church or city? I don't think so. So let's look at it. Chapter 
1, verse 1. And again, um, five times the name Jesus is mentioned in the first four verses. And, um, you know, the, the idea that Jesus, 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 it's all about Jesus. You know, I, I think I shared it last week in my message in, in my home church, you know, the same thing that uh, when you go to Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, when I first went there, I remember the sign. Lydia and I just came. There's a big sign that says, it's all about Jesus. And, you know, it was kind of insignificant when I first seen it. And then after I lived here for a while, I, it started to make more sense why they made that sign in their foyer and why, you know, the idea that, you know, it's all about Jesus because it's culturally that's something that, that, that folks don't understand or maybe they think we get wrong or that we overemphasize Jesus and who Jesus is in our lives. And, you know, I don't know how, you, from my perspective, I'm thinking, how in the world could you ever overemphasize Jesus by wearing a cross? Some people don't like the wearing crosses because of that reason. But um, the, the, the thing is, you can't listen and you don't have to. I want you to understand. I want you to see that it's biblical and that it is about Jesus. And that's the case that Paul's going to make here, that it's all about Jesus in your life and my life. We can't, you can't over worship him. You can't overemphasize him. You can't over have him as a part and want him in your life, that it is all about Jesus. He's even going to say here, and, and we're not going to get to it today, but it's some heavy meat we'll get to next week, that, that in him, all things were created by him, for him, in him, through him, including you and I created for him. So let's look again at verse number one of chapter one. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So we get this, this first three, uh, first two verses of, of Paul's greetings as he starts many of his letters with these Pauline greeting. And, um, the one thing, sometimes when Paul opens a letter, he will just say, um, He'll just describe himself as a bondservant or a doulos. You know, just, just basically doesn't give himself any grand title. And, you know, and it, it identifies with you and I. And it's humility. You know, if anybody could really claim a grand title, it would be the Apostle Paul. You know, we love to do that here in the United States. And, you know, pe- people, you know, sometimes if somebody calls me reverend, I know they don't know me. I'll tell them there is nothing reverend about me. Only God's reverend. But I understand that that's a title that for some reason the pastors and leaders wanted to take on one day. And then that wasn't good enough. So somebody wasn't, wasn't good enough just to call him reverend. So he wanted to be the good reverend. And then someone wanted to beat that. And now this guy's the good right reverend. And then someone, you know, the good right holy reverend, you know, and it just goes on and on. It gets a little obnoxious. You know, I knew a guy, you know, if you called him by his first name, he would, he would correct you. You know, you had to call him pastor so-and-so, you know, and. I'm like, how about schmuck? I'll call you schmuck, but I don't know about that. But, you know, but Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't big time anybody. He doesn't one up anybody. He oftentimes just describes himself as common as you and I, as a bond servant, a servant of Jesus Christ. But here in this epistle, he, he makes mention of his apostleship. And again, he doesn't, he's not being braggadocious here and, and he doesn't make a huge claim, which he could, and he rightfully could. But, but because this letter is going to deal with some authority of Jesus and who Jesus is, Paul uses his apostleship as a stamp on this letter to remind people. You know, today when we plagiarize something, we, um, we take somebody else's ideas and we put our name on it. Well, in the old days, it was exactly the opposite when they plagiarized. They, they took their ideas and they wrote them all down and then they put Paul's name on it or Peter's name or somebody that would give it some weight. And so, you know, because it carried weight. And if a letter came in from Paul, you, you would listen to it. And so Paul here, again, as he begins, he, he uses his apostleship. You know, some people ask, do we have this office of apostle as Paul was valid for today? Is God raising up apostles today as he did in these early days? And, and the, simple, the simple answer to the question is no, he's not. One of the um, qualifications for the apostles is that they were... Um, personally trained by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know that the the 12 were trained by Jesus, right? For three years, he spent three years with them. Judas went out and hung himself. And so when Judas went out and hung himself, the um, apostles took it upon themselves in Acts chapter two to think that they had to replace him. So they, they cast lots. Basically what they did was they, they shortest straw and they cut a bunch of straws, different sizes, and they hid the bottoms and the tops were all even and they pulled them out and the shortest straw was the winner and the lot fell on a guy named Matthias. 
And so they assigned Matthias in Acts chapter 3 to take Judas's vacant spot as the apostleship. But the problem is you never see this guy Matthias again anywhere in the scriptures. He's not mentioned again in the New Testament. You don't find anything about him from Josephus or any of the, the historians that recorded around this time. But what you do find is that God had a guy he was preparing and maybe the apostles jumped the gun in, in, in choosing Matthias to be the, the 12th apostle to replace Judas. But God raised up Paul and Paul meets those requirements. The word apostle just means sent out one. Sent out, called of God, sent out. So I think for a lot of us, we, we can, you know, to some degree, we're, we're apostles or disciples of Jesus Christ, just not in this apostolic authority that the, that the 12 disciples or 12 apostles had. I don't think that exists today. Some would claim, oh, well, certain people. I think certain people, you know, I think you could look at Billy Graham. I think you could look at um, Chuck Smith and different folks along the way, the D.L. Moody's and the Billy Sundays and some of the people in our, in our generation, generation past that, that God used in a mighty way. And they, they might have the gifts of apostleship and they, some of the gifting that the apostles had. But the, the position of apostle, the, the, the other thing is there's 24 um, names written in heaven that, that are going to be there for all of eternity. 12 and 12, what are they? The 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. So the, the gates are written and the, their names are written. The 12, 12 um, um, apostles on the foundation and the 12 um, tribes on the gates. So those 12 names of those 12 apostles, we know what 11 of them are going to be. Scratching your head. Who got that 12th one? Is it going to say Matthias or is it going to say Paul? Who knows? Pretty sure it's going to say Paul. But if not, Paul's got to have like his own throne or something shrine for his name. Because he did more than all of them put together anyways. But... Um, but the, so, so that particular, you know, position of the 12 apostles is, is iconic. And it's, it's so much so that God seals it, you know, in the book of revelation for all of eternity. So, um, so the apostle Paul by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, he mentions Timothy. Timothy was his little Padawan learner. He's also the same Timothy that Paul raised up and then wrote first and second Timothy to him. And when Paul um, raised Timothy up to be a, a leader in the, in the early church and a pastor. And then in verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. A couple of things quickly in this first half of 2. Um, first, Paul says, to the saints. So who is he writing to? Just a very select few like St. Christopher and St. Lydia and, I don't know, St. Mary. Saint Mother Teresa, they just, has she got sainthood yet? Did they do it yet? I think they're making Mother Teresa a saint, she, but she deserves it. You know, this idea that, you know, St. Christopher and St. Nicholas and that, you know, in the Catholic Church, is, it's, it's a certain process and you have to be dead before you become a saint and you have to have accomplished so many things that I think our idea of the term saint is that, you know, it's, it's, it's for something special and, and really spiritual people. But not, biblically, that's, that's not the case. Biblically, you're all saints. If, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in the saint category. And no matter what you've done or didn't do or who you are or how good of a Christian you are or not, if you're born again, believer in Jesus Christ, you fall under the saint category and you're a saint. But I don't tell your mom. She's going to be like, yeah, right. Saint my foot. But technically, biblically, we're all saints. One said there's only two types of people in this world, and it's true. There's the saints and the ain'ts. Because either you're a saint or you ain't. But if you are a saint, then it's not based on your own achievements or your own righteousness or your own good works. It, it has nothing to do with that. It's imputed righteousness. It's, it's God's imputed righteousness unto you. And when God looks at you, you know, when, you, when, when, when it comes to the matter of salvation one day and you stand before God and God's going to judge you, he's not even going to see you. I don't know how it makes you feel, like if it makes you feel accomplished or unaccomplished and now bad, but either he's going to see his son or he's going to see your sins. And if he looks in your life and he sees Jesus, he's kind of fond of his son, then you're good. And that's the righteousness that's imputed to you is Jesus's righteousness in your life. And so um, we're, we're all saints, you know, Lydia's um, merrily, I think as a joke, when, when her and Gerald first got married, she, she, she made him this um, dash mat and it said real big St. Gerald and it was on his dash you know a newly married guy and his wife buys him this thing so you got to get in his car and it says St. Gerald in his car like you got to explain that like you really think that highly of yourself that you put that on 
on your car, but technically, technically, even Rick's a saint. So if that says anything, we're 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 good. So it says the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. One last point. Um, you know, th- there's, there's two types of um, direction of certain messages and of gospel message that you and I want to give. Now, um, sometimes we say that it's evangelistic and, and it's intended to reach the lost. And it's intended for people to have an opportunity who are a far, far from God to be brought close to God. People to have, give people an opportunity to respond to the good news of the gospel. And so we have messages that are evangelistic. You know, the thing is about an evangelistic message is if, if every week we come and we share to, to the people that are lost and, and try and encourage them to come near to God and to receive salvation, then what about those that are saved? They're, they're not being discipled and ministered to and growing. And, and really, Calvary Chapel started um, from Pastor Chuck receiving that exact revelation. Basically, what he happened was he was, he was an evangelist. That was him. That's who he was. And, and he was preaching a, a salvation message and he was good at it every week. And he had about 30, 25, 30 people in church and they were all saved. And every week he would beat them up about getting saved. And he was looking around. He's like, they're all Christians, you know, like they're, they're all saved. And, and so he, he decided that what he, that, that he wasn't any, he was, what was bad is that the people weren't growing and becoming disciples. And every week he was giving them a message about becoming a Christian and they were already Christians. And so he changed and he started teaching the word of God and, and helping people grow and mature in Christ. You know, I, I talked to Jason, our youth leader, and just about this same principle this week and was telling him that, you know, if if we have these like fringe kids that come in and they're, you know, they're whatever, they don't know Jesus, and they're kind of radical, they're hardcore kids and you're happy they're in youth group. Like, that's what we're doing. That's why we're here. And you design your youth group to, to, to share the gospel with them, to meet their needs and to do things that they, you know, that they think will be cool. You know, what, what happens is we, we, then our core kids, our kids who love Jesus and our kids who are there, you know, and have been there for a while and just want to come and grow, we're missing them. And if you miss your core, you're going to miss everybody. But if you focus on your hardcore kids, your kids that love Jesus and you, and you keep the message and you're giving them meat, then, then the, those other kids are going to get, they're going to grow and they're going to get what's left over. And that way we're going to get everybody. And we don't want to just focus on you know, just the unsaved. We want to focus on teaching the word and people grow and they're going to see that and they're by that, they're going to do it. So we always aim for the bullseye, which are our target group and then let the fringe. And that's what Paul says here. He says in the verse two that he, um, he's addressing it to saints who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, not to say that people can't read this because he's going to make a strong case for the deity of Jesus Christ and get saved, but he's focusing on believers and, and, and believers in the church of Colossus and to you and I. And then he says in verse um, three, we give thanks to God and the father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was always so positive at the beginning of his letters. You know, he didn't always stay that way. Good thing he started that way. We talked about Walmart last week, but um, just again, the same idea where Paul's very positive and, you know, he's not going to say a ton negative to the Colossians, more, you know, pragmatic in defense of the faith. But um, he always starts with the positive. He always starts with encouragement and, and he means it here. And he says, we give thanks to God, the father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. One of the things you notice in the Pauline epistles is that Paul was a man of prayer. Somebody say a prayer, prayer, say it again, prayer. So Paul, Paul, everywhere he went, and you'll see it in all of his writings, in Romans. I remember in Romans. In Romans, he was asking the Romans to pray for him. And then he's saying, he's telling them and recording some of the prayers. He's going to record a prayer here um, that's super powerful that, that we're going to learn here as a church, that, that Paul is praying for the church in Colossae. And if you and I could just open um, Colossians and you could read, you could pray, please pray that way for me. Pray that way for your friends. Pray that way for your family. Pray that way for your neighbors. Pray this way for Christians who you're praying for in your life. And Paul will lay it out. But, but Paul was somebody who felt it necessary to pray. Now, not, not to um, be condemning to anybody, but how's your prayer life? How often do you pray for people in your life? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Is it normal that believers should pray? Is that something we do? You know, the, the least attended meeting in, in every church in, around the world? Prayer meeting. 
You know what the least attended meeting is at Toilet Springs? Prayer meeting. One, two, four, six people show up if I call a prayer meeting. I used to do them every Sunday. Still, still been pretty faithful. I, I do it just for me because I need it. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to bag on nobody. I'm really not. I'm really not. It's just, it's just the truth that, you know, I, I think, and this is the thing, like, you know, your friend texts you, oh my gosh, you know, I just found this such and such out. Will you pray for me? And, you know, maybe in a group message and you text back praying hands. Wow, you did it, man. We're good, right? I sent, I sent, you, I sent you some praying hands. But when, when you send them, do you, do you actually pray? Do you really actually pray for them? And maybe we're all guilty, myself included, you know, and I probably more so than you because I probably get a lot more prayer requests than you do. And I, I send a lot of praying hands and I say to a lot of people, I'm praying for you. And, um, and again, not, not to be a condemnation, but just a real check that, that it's important, you guys, that we, we really pray. And it's something that you know, as a church, we've been trying to um, help, like, practical ways. We did, a, we did a, a brochure in here, a little pamphlet, and I think I ran out of them, but we ordered a case of them. I'll get into them because I think they're great. And it's called Praying Through the Tabernacle by John Corson. It's just a little book like this. It'll take you 15 minutes to read it, and it's, a, it's a, like a 10-step um, progression to pray. I've talked about Acts before. That was the first one I learned as a new believer in this little one-on-one discipleship class that my church put me through when I first came to Jesus. And, and one of the things they taught was, was A-C-T-S, adoration, um, confession, A-C-T, thanksgiving, and supplication. And that was an acronym for Acts. And it was, so when I started to pray, I would start with A, adoration. Lord, I thank you. I praise you. And then, and then I would get to C, confession. Lord, uh, forgive me that uh, I was checking out this redhead in the second row today. And, um, and then, and then um, T, thanksgiving. And then I'd give the Lord thanks. And then S would be supplication. That's where you, you make your request. Lord, I pray for this. I pray for that. And again, that's not the only way or the right way or perfect. It's just, it was just something practical. That, that helped me walk through as a new believer, um, really praying. And so we did one, and it's a 10-step one that John Corson wrote on praying through the tabernacle, and it's super powerful. And it, again, it just is a way to get us down. But I want to encourage us again through this and through the, you know, for the church that, you know, w- we shouldn't think it's strange, and, and we need to be intentional about our prayer life as believers. If you don't know how to pray, if you're not comfortable praying, if you don't know what to say when you pray, I can remember going to a pastor's conference one time, and this pastor tells a story about a, a guy from India who comes in his in his church, and eventually him and this guy started 200 churches in India. That's a lot of church plants, believe me, 200 churches in India. But when they first met, the very first day, this pastor's telling this story, the guy came, and the guy was a stranger, and he didn't know him, and the guy wanted work. And he said, will you come? And he was telling him some stuff going on. He said, will you come back tomorrow? And if you show up at, at seven o'clock, we'll, we'll pray and, and we'll pray together and, and see what God wants to do. But he didn't know the guy. He didn't know if he could trust the guy when the guy first came, the pastor didn't. So, and he said, I often do that because the next morning at 7am, they don't show up and then it's done. I just, you know, I don't have to deal with it anymore. Or if it's not real and they don't show up the next day at seven o'clock, he said, the guy shows up and we go in my office and we start praying. And he said, at one o'clock, we, we got done praying and we came out and he's just telling the story like this. And like, you know, I'm a pastor already. I'm in a pastor's conference, but a younger pastor. And I'm like, it's eight, nine, <laughs> ten, six hours. What in the world did he say for six hours? Wow. That guy can pray for six hours. That's a cool pastor. You know, like, I don't even know. I, I still don't know how you pray for six hours, but that's what his story goes. So, you know, I remember feeling that way. Like, I don't know how to pray that way. Like, I don't, what would I say for that long? And maybe you feel like, oh, I tried to pray and I don't know what to say for six minutes. And so that's where those things come in handy um, in, in, in teaching us and getting us in the habit. And then just like anything, playing the piano, playing the guitar. First time you play, you're not going to bang out some Mozart or some Bach. But um, if you practice and you, you'll get better and you'll, you'll get more sustained And prayer is the same way. You practice and you use it and it grows. So, but, but just again, just the emphasis that we have to be a people who praise. Amen. And Paul was that way. Jesus was that way. That's the one that blows me away. We've unpacked that one already. I was going to do it again today just for fun, but we're out of time. So, um, but Jesus set the example of prayer. And Jesus in his kenosis, in his emptied state, he, he had to stay connected to the Father. Jesus walked on water, and he didn't do it because he had special God powers. He did it because he was, he was, he was connected to the Father. 
And he emptied himself of those special God powers. Jesus didn't use special God powers when he faced the cross. When he, when he was punched in the face and when he was whipped on his back. He took all of that for you and I. And then um, in verse number um, four, it says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for the saints... And so um, one, what does Paul hear about the church of Colossae in verse 4 in the last half there? What is, what, is, what is the word that's spreading about Colossae? They have this big barbecue and they make some killer tri-tip. That would speak love. That would speak love. That's what they say about us. But, you know, it's cool that, that what marked this church was love. This church in Colossus. And what Paul heard about him was that, hey, man, we've heard rumors. And they're, they're saying that you guys just love everybody that goes to that church. You guys are a church that's about love. And so that's so cool, right? And that's what we've been talking about in here a lot is that we need to be a church that, that has that same connection. That, that, that people feel loved when they come here. That people feel welcomed when they come here. And that, ha- that takes all of you guys to be a part. You know, I, I try to do my best to greet and welcome and love everybody who comes through. But if, you know, if, if I welcome and love and greet everybody and then you guys are all jerks to them, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't help, right? They don't feel it. They don't feel the love. No, I'm just kidding. You guys are definitely not. And we get, um, we get some of the greatest compliments. And, and my favorite com- compliment and best compliment is when folks say, you know, um, I felt good. I felt the Holy Spirit. I felt love in the church. And that needs to be the way it is. But that takes all of us. So when you see a stranger, when you see somebody who um, you don't recognize, or maybe somebody you do recognize, if God's given you a gift of discernment, you can go and encourage them, talk to them, hang out with them, spend time so that we can have that same reputation that they had here in Coloss. A couple more verses and we're almost done. Um, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel in verse 5. Because of the what? Hope. Hope, as Ben Corson says, is dope. Hope is dope. And, and hope really does change our lives, you guys. And, and, and here, our particular hope is in heaven. And, and why is it so um, powerful? Listen, for you and I, I want to encourage you that, that to hope in heaven. And Paul says you have hope in heaven. And no matter how bad this world gets, no matter how bad um, things appear on this side of eternity, as Christians, you can always say, well, yeah, I'm going to heaven one day, though. I'm going to heaven one day. Things are going to be perfect there. And things are going to be good there. It was part of the process that Paul taught us in the Philippians of how we have joy as believers is that we have a hope that surpasses understanding. And and Paul reminds us here that our hope is in heaven, that our hope is in heaven. I have a friend that I grew up with. He was one of my best friends, honestly, um, probably like um, seventh, eighth grade. Uh, We knew each other since about fourth grade and um, got a bunch of pictures of him and I together. We, we, We lived together practically. I mean, it was just really my best friend as a young kid. And then we, by sophomore year, we ended up in two different high schools, but we stayed close and we stayed friends our whole lives. And, um, this last election, he, um, he, he completely just flipped out and said all kinds of crazy mean things. And, um, you know, and it was like about, about, you know, who he voted for and who I voted for. And, um, he was so mad. And I said, man, what does it matter? I said, we've been friends since fourth grade. I said, you're going to throw all that away? You're, you're really that mad at me? You really hate me because of who I voted for? I said, does it not matter to you that we've been friends since fourth grade, man? Really good friends? And he didn't care. He was so done. To this day, he won't ever talk to me. He hates me. Over, and like, like I said, I don't care that you have terrible political views. Like, <laughs> I, I, I still love you. Like, we've been friends since the fourth grade, man. Like, I, we, we can agree to disagree. And. You know, but the thing that, that, and and he really, he was, he was vitriolic. He was angry and spitting venom and he just doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. It's cool. But, but the reason, the difference is he, he just doesn't have any hope outside of who our president is. He doesn't have any hope outside of who our politics are and, and who the next thing is. So this was very devastating for him in his worldview. And, 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 and he just, it, it, it really did bother him to the core. Now, it bothered me the last eight years the same way. But I didn't trip. I don't care because I never put any hope in who the president is or is not. And, and, and though I didn't like it, I, I, I have hope in heaven. My hope is in heaven. My hope is not in the president. This president, the last president or the next president is not going to fix things. Only Jesus is going to fix things. And only when he comes back is, is things going to really change in life. 
And so because you and I, because we have this hope in us, maybe we can like take the blue pill and chill and rub our ears and say, woosa about these things. Like, it's okay. Like it doesn't, it, it shouldn't affect us, you know, but because there is a hope in heaven. And then Paul says, which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word, the truth of the gospel or the truth, the gospel, the gospel is true. What did Jesus say in John seventeen seventeen? I'm glad you asked. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Listen to what Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus said. Speaking to the father, he said, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. And, and, and the word of God is truth. And the reality is our truth comes from and is, and is contained in the word of God. We're going to get some heavy truth and some heavy doctrine that's powerful in, in, in what Paul's going to unpack next week. And so, and so again, a hope in heaven, a truth in the gospel. You know, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees one time, he said, you do err having not known the holy scriptures. And, and their mistake was they didn't know Jesus according to the scriptures. And I want to tell you that in this Jesus, Jesus, Jesus that we're going to unpack in Colossians chapter um, 2 and, and through Colossians. Colossians 1 and 2 is doctrine. Colossians 3 and 4. Colossians breaks up real nice as application to our lives. And Paul's going to really make a hard gloves off case for who Jesus is. And I want to tell you it is really important. It really does matter. It matters that we get the right Jesus. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. They missed it. And, and Jesus told them that you err having not known the Holy Scriptures. And the reality is that truth comes from the word. And as Jesus said, your word is truth. And Paul then goes on and reminds that a hope is in heaven and the truth is in the gospel. And, and how you know Jesus and who Jesus is, it, it is important that you know Jesus according to truth and according to that truth that comes from the word of God and not man's ideas and man's philosophies. And then um, he says in verse six, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. So this gospel, this truth that's come to them and it came, Paul said, to the rest of the world and it's bringing forth fruit. It's working. The gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely changing lives all over the world. You know, there's a prophecy that says, or there's a verse in the Bible that says that, that Jesus can't come back until the gospel has gone into all the world. And some would argue that Jesus can't come back today because there's remote places in the world where the gospel has not gone or penetrated. But that's just simply not the case. By Paul's day here, Paul had believed that the gospel went to the known world and that had already gone all, all throughout the world. And that prophecy was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And here in Colossians, Paul tells us that the gospel went into all the world. And, 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 and that was without trains, planes, automobiles. That was without Twitter and Facebook and CNN and, and anything else. I mean, just by writing letters and word of mouth, they, were, they had shared the gospel in the entire known world by raising people up and sending them out. Is bringing forth fruit and as also among you since the day you heard it and knew, and knew the grace of God in truth. And so to know the grace of God. And then in truth, again, just that, that gentle reminder that the things that we know about God, they have to be in truth. And, the, and that truth has to be grounded somewhere. It has to be rooted somewhere. So you have an idea, you know, when people tell me, oh, I, I don't believe in God. So what? It doesn't change the truth. Whether you believe in it or not, it, it, it's not a reality. I mean, it doesn't change the reality. And, and truth has to be grounded. Or I believe this about God. Or I believe that about God. Or I believe this about Jesus. Or I believe that about Jesus. And one of the things, as with the Philippian church, Paul is dealing with um, bad doctrine. And, and the bad doctrine had crept into the church in Colossae, the second in-group that we saw that Paul dealt with in the Philippians. Remember in the Philippian church, he sent a letter and he, and he said, beware of these dogs. They come in after him and they add all kinds of things to the gospel. And that same idea that um, Paul is going to deal with in the Philippians, he has to deal with to the Colossians. Is, is bad doctrine and people that were coming in after him and they were adding to the gospel. And so that's part of the reason why Paul, the, the book of Colossians is pragmatic because this young church was, was dealing with people and, and new ideas that were sounding kind of, you know, enticing. And so Paul's writing a letter to, to tell them and these constant reminders that the word of God is true. The word of God is true and it's in the word of God and it's from the word of God. And Paul, and Paul is going to have to defend it 
You know, we saw the Judaizers and that were the, the Jews who would come in after Paul and say, yeah, Jesus is great. And the things that Paul are teaching you is great, but you also have to um, be baptized. I mean, you also have to be circumcised and you also have to follow certain laws of Moses. And those are the ones that Paul calls dogs in that chapter and then or in that book and that church. And then here in Colossae, he's dealing again with more heresy that he's going to deal with. And he continues to remind them of truth. And then in seven and eight, we meet Epaphras. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. And so we're going to pick up there. We're going to end there. Uh, We'll pick up there next week. uh, Verse number nine next week. So we're going to, um, at this time, invite the worship team to come up and um, we're going to close in a communion. And so we'd like to just, again, invite everybody to relax. We're not done. We're going to um, receive communion as a family of believers. And so the, the Bible tells us two things about communion. Well, the Bible probably tells us more than two things about the communion. Two things that I'm going to talk about today. And again, you know, the Bible never tells us how often we should receive communion, just that we should. But it says, as often as you do have a communion ceremony, that um, you should do it in remembrance of me, the Bible says. And now the, the, the idea of communion, and, and I don't know, maybe in the, in the Christian church, you know, it seems like the Catholic church has put a great emphasis and rightfully so upon communion and, and the meaning of communion. But the reason maybe we've strayed away from it is for that same reason that it becomes very ritualistic. But here, here's the deal. This is a ceremony that we have that God gave us that is about relationship and it's about intimacy. And Jesus said to do it in remembrance of me. Oftentimes when I give a communion meditation before we take communion, I will go through the brutal, violent details of the death of Jesus on the cross. For the very reason that Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me and that he doesn't want us to forget the price that he paid for you and I. And, and, and that we should not take our salvation and, and, and that you've been bought, the Bible says, with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we don't take it lightly. We don't take it for granted. That we have a heartfelt appreciation for Jesus. Because he said, do it in remembrance of me. And then the second thing that that the Bible says is is Paul was the Corinthian church was doing communion like we're going to do today. And and again, according to God's will for the church, for all churches and um, and they were doing it all wrong and they were messing it up. And so Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, he's fixing the way they were taking communion. And he said, he said, when you take it, it, there's sick people among you. Literally, they were they were getting physically sick because they were disrespecting the communion service in the Corinthian church and they were getting drunk and they were doing other things along with it, along with the service. And and, and Paul says, you're you, you know, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. And he said that it should be a time of self-examination, it should be a time of 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 confessing sins and, and getting your heart and life right with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because the reason that, the, that, that it says to the Corinthians that they were doing it in an unworthy manner, some churches teach, and maybe you've been to a church, that you have to be worthy or, or to receive communion. But we, we, don't, we don't see, I don't see that in the scripture. I don't see anywhere where, you know, the church should decide who's worthy and who's not. And if I get to decide which one of you are worthy, who's going to decide if I'm worthy? And then who's going to decide if they're deciding that they're worthy and where does it end? And really, it's between you and God. But the truth is, so everybody's welcome to receive communion. And that's between you and God. And yeah, for sure, we don't want to do it in an unworthy manner. But the, the reality is, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, communion makes no sense for you to take communion. You should let it pass. Because you, you're doing something to take of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that you haven't received or don't believe in. So it's not that you're not worthy. It just doesn't unworthy or worthy is, is irrelevant. It just doesn't make sense for you as a non-believer to, to take communion. It's a, it's a something for believers. So rather than just as a non-believer letting it pass today, you got a better idea. Why don't you get saved? You ask Jesus in your heart and then you become a believer and then you receive communion and it all works. I want to share with you guys a quick scripture. I'm going to read um, as we receive communion. And then I'm going to invite you guys to come up and uh, take communion with us together. And just go back to your seat. This last song, last song we'll pray. You'll have the bread and the cup. 
oftentimes take the bread in my hand and, and I use that as a time of do it in remembrance of me and I'm thankful and I break the bread in my hand because the body says that Jesus' bro- body was broken for us. And then I take the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ, and I use that time to confess sins and, and ask God to you know, check my heart and get right with the Lord and, and thank him for his, uh, his blood that was shed for us. In, in Philippians chapter 2, it, it talks about Jesus became flesh and emptied himself. And it says that, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself or he emptied himself and he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we'll invite you guys at this time to um, come up and, and take the communion back to your seat. But just before we do, let's, let's stand together. And then we're going to move a couple of these chairs so it's a little more easier. Um, if there's anybody in here today who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, and we give different invitations for different reasons, and today it's specifically for salvation. If you're not sure that, that you're a believer and that you, know, you don't know today if you died what happened, you're not sure you're a Christian, you want to make sure it's as simply as trusting and believing on the Lord Jesus, the Bible says. The Philippian jailer had a knife to his stomach and was seconds away from ending his own life. And Paul told him, stop, don't do that. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer cried out to Paul and he said, Paul, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to go to heaven? And Paul said very simply in one of the most simple places we have in all the scriptures, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And it can be that simple to trust and believe on the Lord Jesus. And so we want to give you that opportunity to do that today. Will you guys pray with me as a church? Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe that he died and rose again the third day. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.